nominations for three important positions, Ms. Mallory Stewart to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control Verification and Compliance, Ms. Lisa Carty to be the U.S. Representative on the U.N. Economic and Social Council and an alternative representative to the U.N. General Assembly, and Mr. Steve Bondi to be the Ambassador to Bahrain. Congratulations on your nominations. So we appreciate your willingness and also those of your families uh, to serve. Uh, our, your families are certainly part of uh, the sacrifice on behalf of the nation, so we appreciate them as well. Um, Ms. Stewart, uh, the ABC Bureau is critical in the State Department and to our national security, leading U.S. diplomatic efforts to confront our adversaries about their most dangerous weapons. I'm pleased to see you bring a wealth of experience to this important role, including from your current service on the National Security Council as the Senior Director for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and your years in the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the ABC Bureau working on these issues. If confirmed, you will have to address a series of challenges from the very start, including a weakened ABC Bureau, the result of years of neglect under the previous administration, at the exact moment that we are entering a more dangerous world. The head of our nuclear forces, Navy Admiral Charles Richard, recently called China's explosive growth and modernization of its nuclear and conventional forces breathtaking. Russia continues to modernize its shorter-range non-strategic weapons and has shown a willingness to use chemical weapons against its own citizens. Iran is moving closer to having enough material for a nuclear weapon. I'm concerned that the Bureau is unprepared for this more dangerous world and that it lacks the resources and staff it needs to effectually, effectively negotiate with our strategic rivals. I trust that if confirmed, you will use your knowledge and skills to prioritize strengthening ABC, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on how to address the challenges ahead. Ms. Cardi, congratulations on your nomination. It's reassuring that President Biden has nominated you a consummate professional with decades of experience working with the United Nations and the Department of State to this role to help address the economic, humanitarian, and social challenges facing the globe. Under President Trump, the United States largely abdicated a leadership role at the United Nations. From attempting to pull out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a global pandemic, to undermining international protections for women, girls, and LGBTI individuals, to defunding or cutting funding to key agencies, we sent the signal that the United States would no longer see, lead, I should say, ceding space and influence to China and Russia. If confirmed, you'll join a new team committed to repair what has been undermined, including support for human rights, democracy, and addressing the metastasizing humanitarian crisis around the world, including the most recent one in Afghanistan after the rapid collapse of the Ghani government and Taliban takeover. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on how critical the agency's initiatives like those promoting the equal rights of women and girls can continue in Afghanistan. And if confirmed, I trust that you'll draw on your decades of relevant experience to effectively engage within and work to strengthen the UN system. Mr. Bondi, welcome to the committee. I'm pleased to see such an experienced diplomat and Livingston, New Jersey native nominated for a critical Gulf post. I'm not surprised that someone from the Garden State has merited a dozen State Department awards, a Service Commendation Award from the Department of Defense, and a Presidential Rank Award, and speaks five languages. 
I'd also like to note that I'm not the only one to praise your service. Retired General Voltel, former commander of CENTCOM, who served with you, has noted that you are, quote, extraordinarily well qualified for this position and called you an, quote, effective collaborator who is deeply respected across the military and within the interagency. I also have a statement from Ambassador Hugo Lorenz praising your service and record, and without objection, I move to enter those statements into the record. U.S.-Bahrain ties are longstanding. As the host to the U.S. Naval Forces Central Command and the Navy's Fifth Fleet, Bahrain is an essential U.S. partner in our shared efforts to maintain stability and security in the Arabian Gulf. As the region continues to face instability and threats most concerning from Iran, it is critical that we have a skilled diplomat in place to strengthen and maintain our partnership. Bahrain has also led the change for more regional diplomacy as an original signatory to the Abraham Accords, and I have full confidence you will work to further their political, economic, and cultural normalization with Israel. Your extensive experience in the Middle East, including time spent as the Counselor for Political and Economic Affairs in Bahrain, and more recently as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Charge d'Affaires in Abu Dhabi, will certainly serve you well and the country well in navigating our embassy in Manama. I look forward to each of your testimonies. And with that, let me turn to this ranking member who's opening remarks. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and good morning. Welcome to our nominees. Uh, on the nomination uh, of Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control, Verification and Compliance, I want to make clear that a uh, sole-purpose nuclear declaratory policy or any perceived weakening of the U.S. nuclear deterrent will be a betrayal of our allies and will embolden China and Russia. It will also cause allies to lose confidence in the Biden administration's commitment to NATO's Article 5 commitments and to Asia's security. The position you've been nominated to is incredibly important uh, to not only the United States, but also our allies and, for that matter, our enemies. For decades, uh, U.S. administrations have embraced the longstanding policy of strategic ambiguity regarding the use of nuclear weapons. While administrations have thought about changing uh, to a no-first-use policy, they realized international security was more important than ideology. Indeed, uh, the Obama administration itself studied this closely and rejected such a policy change twice. Earlier this year, our British allies also rejected this change. The Biden administration says it wants to strengthen U.S. alliances. U.S. allies have told me, have told us, that they strongly object to a change to a no-first-use or sole purpose, which is nothing more than no-first-use-in-disguise policy. This administration should listen to them. On the nomination of ambassador to the uh, Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, the United States remains the largest donor to the United Nations. In recent years, the Chinese Communist Party has used its minimal donations to leverage a large-scale malign influence campaign affecting, in particular, the NGO committee in order to block NGOs critical of China, and, and they support NGOs that are actually run by the Chinese Communist Party. More must be done to stop this harmful practice. The Biden administration has also decided to run for a seat on a human rights council. The Council is known for its anti-Israel bias, and troubling countries, including the worst human rights offenders on the planet, like China, Cuba, Russia, and Venezuela. I strongly oppose any attempt by the United States to rejoin this sham group until reforms have been achieved. 
On the nomination of Ambassador to Bahrain, the United States and the Kingdom of Bahrain have enjoyed a close relationship since the 1940s. Home to the U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet and the International Maritime Security Construct, Bahrain is a linchpin for regional stability and serves as a critical front against Iran's regional aggression. I remain concerned that Iran continues its efforts to destabilize Bahrain and arm the terrorist groups that operate there. On the human rights front, Bahrain has come a long way since the Arab Spring. While there is more work to be done, certainly, the kingdom has made strides in effective uh, policing, advancing human rights, and uh, curbing trafficking in persons. It is vital that we continue this important work. Finally, I applaud uh, Bahrain's growing relationship with Israel with its signing of the Abraham Accords. These agreements finally offer a path forward for peace in a troubled region. And the recent visit of the Israeli foreign minister and embassy opening were encouraging steps. Should you be confirmed, it is critical that you work to encourage Bahrain and Israel that, uh, to deepen their diplomatic, economic, and security relationship. This is a priority effort. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Risch. All right, so we'll turn to our nominees. We ask you to summarize your statements in about five minutes or so, so we can have an opportunity for robust questions. Um, your full statements will be included in the record without objection. Uh, and we will start with Ms. Stewart and work our way down the aisle. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of this committee for the opportunity to appear before you today. It is my distinct honor and pleasure to be President Biden's nominee for the role of Assistant Secretary for Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance at the Department of State. I want to thank the President and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me and for the opportunity, if confirmed, to help advance and protect American national security. I would also like to thank my colleagues and friends who have supported me throughout this process, and I, was, I would especially like to thank my parents, my husband, and our three children. I could not have achieved anything without their encouragement, their guidance, their patience, and their endless love and support. The Arms Control Verification and Compliance Bureau, ABC, is at the forefront of some of the most challenging and pressing national security priorities. I know firsthand just how important, complex, and challenging ABC's work is, because if confirmed, this would be a return to the Bureau in which I proudly served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary. I also had the privilege of working on the ABC portfolio prior to that during my time in the State Department's Legal Advisor's Office, and I continue to work many of these issues in my current role at the National Security Council. I joined the State Department's Legal Advisor's Office in 2002. I was inspired to leave my law firm job in part by the events of 9-11 amidst the swirl of international outreach, coordination, and concern. Throughout my time working on arms control and treaty issues, I have personally witnessed the value of international cooperation, engagement, and dialogue, even and sometimes especially with non-traditional partners and potential competitors. In order to most effectively achieve the Bureau's mission, ABC must continue its work to reestablish U.S. leadership in multilateral institutions and re-engage with allies and partners. The Biden-Harris administration recognizes that the challenges we face are not ours alone and cannot be solved by any one nation. That is why it has placed a great deal of importance on engagement and has begun the work to revitalize and strengthen our alliances in the Euro-Atlantic and Indo-Pacific to better deter and defend against growing threats. But engagement with allies is only one piece of the diplomacy puzzle. We must also engage with our main competitors, like Russia and China, and attempt to keep an open dialogue. It is important to be able to engage on security even at times of bilateral tension and disagreement. 
That is why this administration is engaged in a strategic stability dialogue with Russia and why we seek to engage in meaningful dialogue on nuclear and other strategic stability threats with China. From an administrative perspective, I am specifically interested in expanding AVC's capacity to work on the challenges posed by these countries' increasingly aggressive behaviors. If confirmed, I would welcome the opportunity to lead this important bureau together with the many dedicated professional public servants that uphold the Bureau's national security mission every day. ABC's work to address the existential threat posed by nuclear weapons, deter the use of all weapons of mass destruction, and contend with emerging technology security challenge, challenges in a rapidly evolving security environment is critical to American security. If confirmed, I would hope to partner with The Hill and with other departments and agencies to make sure the Bureau has the necessary support and resources to fulfill its important mission. Working together, we need to make sure ABC has the best tools and analytical capabilities available, now and in the future, to provide robust verification of arms control, nonproliferation, and disarmament agreements and commitments, as well as rigorous assessments of compliance with those agreements and commitments, including in order to provide Congress with a complete and accurate accounting of the arms control landscape through the annual compliance report. I was personally involved with the compliance report when I was at DAS and ABC, and I think it is critically important uh, that need, and it needs to be thorough, clear, and credible. If confirmed, I will make its timely delivery to Congress a priority. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of this committee, you have my commitment that, if confirmed, I will work in close coordination with you and deeply respect your role in the form formation of foreign policy. There are a great number of challenges we face, but we face them together and we must resolve them together. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, and 47 seconds to spare, that's pretty good. Uh, Mr. Bondi. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of this committee, thank you for your warm welcome, and thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Bahrain. I'm extremely grateful to the President a fellow fighting blue hen of the University of Delaware, and to Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have shown in me with this nomination. It is the thrill of a lifetime to be in this position, and if confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee and the Congress on the important foreign policy interests of the United States in Bahrain. I would like to start by recognizing and thanking my wife, Megan, who has been a steadfast supporter and source of inspiration through thick and thin, including the two years I served in war zones. Our daughter Rachel is here today, and our son Drew is tuning in from Brooklyn. Rachel and Drew traveled the world with us and enrich our lives with their love and global perspective. My parents, George and Enid Bondi, are also watching today's proceedings from Daytona Beach. I owe them all more than I can say. Mr. Chairman, I'm excited at the prospect, if confirmed, of returning to a country where my family and I spent three wonderful years. Bahrain was a key part of the recent Operation Allies Refuge, facilitating and supporting over 7,000 Americans and others transiting the country on their way to the United States. Bahrain once again demonstrated it is not just a partner or an ally, it is a real friend. The foundation of that friendship begins with our shared national security interests. The United States Navy has had an enduring presence in Bahrain since the 1940s, 
and it has been home to the U.S. Navy Central Command and Fifth Fleet since the Gulf War. Bahrain is a safe, secure, and welcoming home to the 8,500 U.S. military members and their families who are in country. The United States works collaboratively with the Bahraini government to address threats to the internal security of the kingdom and the region, particularly from Iran. This joint security work helps keep safe American citizens, investments, and interests in the country. And if confirmed, I will have no higher priority than protecting the safety and security of Americans in Bahrain. Mr. Chairman, a year ago, Bahrain and Israel signed the Abraham Accords Agreement, shepherded by the United States. This bold act represents a change in the strategic orientation of the kingdom, and it opened the door to Bahrain and Israel developing their relationship across a wide spectrum of shared interests. If confirmed, I will devote my energy and creativity to expanding and strengthening this relationship. The President and the Secretary have been clear that human rights are at the center of our foreign policy. If confirmed, a primary focus of our bilateral engagement will be to advance respect for human rights and political participation, particularly as the 2022 parliamentary elections approach. We will continue to have open and honest exchanges with Bahrain on these important matters, recognizing both where more progress needs to be made as well as where and when Bahrain has made meaningful progress. Mr. Chairman, I was fortunate to be serving in Bahrain when our bilateral free trade agreement entered into force in 2006. That agreement established a solid basis for our commercial relations, and American companies can play an important role as the Bahraini economy emerges from the COVID pandemic. If confirmed, I will advocate on behalf of American companies pursuing opportunities in Bahrain. Mr. Chairman, the United States and Bahrain have a friendship that goes back almost 120 years when intrepid Americans established the American Mission Hospital and related school in Manama. It will be my distinct honor, if confirmed, to build upon this legacy as the United States Ambassador to Bahrain. I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you, Ms. Carty. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, it's truly an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to become the U.S. Representative to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. I'm grateful to the President, to Secretary Blinken, and to Ambassador Thomas Greenfield for their confidence in me. If confirmed, I will do my best to live up to their trust and to work closely with all of you on the committee. I'd like to begin by expressing my deep appreciation to my family, to my husband, Bill Burns, an exceptionally dedicated public servant who has inspired and supported me since we first met as junior foreign service officers nearly 40 years ago, <clears throat> and to our daughters, Lizzie and Sarah, who from infancy through college shared our foreign service journey and the many moves that that entailed. I wish that my parents and my in-laws, each models of exemplary service, could see this moment. My father was a proud graduate of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy and a Korean War veteran. My mother, a public school special education teacher. My father-in-law served in the U.S. Army for 34 years, with my mother-in-law his full partner in all the sacrifices that required. Their example and the love and support of my family 
are a very large part of why I am here today. I approach this new challenge with considerable humility, with an abiding commitment to public service, with faith in the power of clear-eyed diplomacy in the pursuit of American interests and human rights, and with a well-grounded sense of both the possibilities and the limitations of the United Nations, and with few illusions about the complicated world around us. It is a world in which the UN has a crucial role, especially in tackling the humanitarian, development, human rights, and social issues to which I have devoted nearly four decades as a career diplomat and then as an official of the United Nations. It is a world in which the COVID pandemic and a changing climate have worsened problems of poverty, instability, and health insecurity, especially for women and girls, and where the UN's Economic and Social Council can play a key role in mounting a global response consistent with US interests. It is a world in which authoritarian rivals like China and Russia and others seek advantage in the UN system and where active and energetic American diplomacy is required to counter them. And it is a world in which the capabilities of the United Nations matter enormously, but also require relentless US insistence on transparency, accountability, and reform, as well as unwavering resistance to anti-Israel bias. My professional background provides a unique combination of skills to help the United States take on these challenges. I spent 25 years as a foreign service officer working extensively on humanitarian, health, gender, and development issues with field experience in Asia, Russia, and the Middle East. I served as a Pearson Congressional Fellow working for Senator Nancy Kassebaum on the Africa Subcommittee. I worked for USAID on health programs in Russia and served as the State Department's Regional Refugee Coordinator based in Amman, Jordan. I have decades of experience in multilateral diplomacy and a strong sense of how to navigate the UN system, shaped by 10 years of work in UN entities. First, with the Joint United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS, working hand-in-hand -hand with PEPFAR, and most recently with the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, where through the combined efforts of US government counterparts and courageous and committed UN colleagues, we helped alleviate suffering in some of the world's worst crises. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I look forward to working hard to put that background to good use in support of American interests. I will work hard to ensure that UN efforts across the responsibilities of the Economic and Social Council are effective, well-run, and consistent with US goals. I will work hard with allies and partners to mobilize coalitions and achieve practical outcomes. And I will work hard with all of you to ensure the closest possible collaboration with Congress. Thank you very much again, Mr. Chairman, for your consideration. This is truly the honor of a lifetime. And if confirmed, I will devote the full measure of my skill and experience to serve the best interests of the American people. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you all very much. Um, we'll go through a, minute, uh, a series of five-minute rounds. But before uh, we do that, I have a series of questions on behalf of the committee as a whole that I'd like to ask each nominee. Uh, they speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So I would ask each of you to provide a just a simple yes or no answer to uh, the following questions. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. If you can give me a verbal response, please. Yes. Yes. Okay. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Your microphone's not on. Um, do you commit to keep the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? 
Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 And do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Okay, all of the witnesses, I mean the nominees have answered yes to those questions. Uh, I will, the chair will reserve his time and I'll turn to the ranking member. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Stewart, I want to start, uh, first of all, on the very important role you have on uh, uh, th that you're seeking here uh, with the Bureau. And um, I, as I said to you in my opening statement that the Biden administration wants to strengthen U.S. allies and uh, we all do, the, uh, the, uh, the allegiances that we have and the agreements we have. Um, the U.S. allies, however, have told us that they strongly object to a change to a uh, no first use or sole purpose policy uh, for reasons I've previously stated. Are you aware of their objections? Uh, thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, I share your concern about allies and partners understanding uh, U.S. deterrence. Policy. That wasn't the question. The question was, are you aware that they have strenuous objections to what the administration is proposing? So I have seen um, some um, traffic and uh, um, assessments of engagements, and there's been numerous engagements with allies and partners. So you are aware that our uh, partners and, uh, and our allies have strenuous objection to what's being considered here. Is that, is that a fair statement or not? So I think I'm not... I'm not sure if I understand the term strenuous objection. I think they're concerned about what we're going to Will you to go do. so far as to say they have an objection? I don't even know if it's an objection, but perhaps the, the point is that I think through our engagement, we hope to explain and understand and really hear from them further so as you, to their concerns. You're telling me as you sit here today, you do not understand that our allies have strong objections to what, you're con what the administration's considering. Is that what you're telling me? So I would definitely agree that there are certain concerns about what is possibly in the consideration process, but I think the, the effort that we're undergoing to engage with them is to really understand what those concerns are and to hopefully address those concerns through part of the engagement process. Well, um, <laughs> you're, you, you won't go to where I need you to be, and that is to get a good, clear understanding. If we, on the committee, on the Republican side of the committee, have an understanding that our allies have strong, strong objections to what you're considering, how is it that you can't concede that? Uh, I understand you're saying they have concerns. Would you agree with me that they're stronger than concerns? I guess, my, and I definitely appreciate what you're trying to sort of get at here. My concern to um, completely satisfy your question is that we're still very much in the process. We don't know the result of the nuclear posture review uh, that the Department of Defense is leading. And so it's very hard to say that allies and, and partners can have objections to a process that hasn't sort of played out and we haven't had a chance to engage more fulsomely with them as to where the direction is going. And there's a lot of considerations in the process. So if they object, it seems like they're prematurely objecting to something that we haven't established. So you've already said if they object. You, you don't know that they're objecting. Is that correct? I think the concern is what, what would they be objecting to at this point yeah. without the actual report? Well, I'm not going to get you there, so I'm not going to pursue that any further. But let's, uh, let me say I'm, I'm disappointed in your answers. We are, we are acutely aware uh, of uh, objections, 
strong objections that have been raised by our allies. If you're not, uh, you need to get on board before I'm going to be able to, to vote for your uh, confirmation. You were uh, in the same bureau in the Obama administration. You're aware that twice they considered adopting a no first use or sole purpose policy. You are aware of that, are you not? Mm -hmm. Once early on in their administration, and then again during the time you were there between 2015, 2017, is that correct? Yes. Would you tell this committee why the Obama administration uh, decided not to adopt a no first use or sole purpose policy? My understanding is that they had a lot of effort to engage and understand partners' perceptions, and I, I'm Sorry that you um, take issue with my statement. I think the concern is that we really need to allow the process to play out, and we need to understand the best advice uh, from the Department of Defense leading this process um, and, and how that um, can be um, implemented through policy uh, that we work with partners and allies to explain and understand. But to your question, sorry. Um, the, the approach in the Obama administration to get to fundamental purpose of deterrence was really to um, accommodate um, many of the challenges we face through our um, deterrence efforts and to understand integrated uh, deterrence issues within the report and to address some of the existential threats that we faced at that time. But you agree with me they specifically rejected adopting a no first use or sole purpose policy. Do you agree with that? So I was not part of the NPR process during that time. Did they or didn't they? They do not have sole purpose or no first use in the Obama policy. And they specifically rejected it after considering it and studying it. Is that correct? I assume that they looked at it closely, but I was not part of that process, yes. Um, and I agree with you. We need to let the, the thing play out. But if we're going to let the process play out, we need to have a least a clear understanding of what our allies are telling us. And looks to me like you've got a long ways to go to get there. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to each of our nominees today. Um, if confirmed, I look forward to working with you. Um, I would like to begin, <clears throat> excuse me, with you, Ms. Carty. And as the representative to the UN's Economic and Social Council. Uh, I wanted to assess your um, feeling about the Commission on the Status of Women, which is the only global body dedicated to the promotion of women and girls' empowerment and equality and aids to mainstream women's equality and UN activities. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as you look at the role that you can play within ECOSOC and with the Commission, how do you think um, efforts to improve women's empowerment could be bolstered by the work of the Commission? And do you see specific changes that you can be engaged in that will help with that? Senator Shaheen, thank you so much for that question. I've spent a fair part of my career working on issues related to women and girls and gender, and it's an issue that's very near and dear to my heart. I see multiple opportunities, Senator, across the UN system where I could help, through a position in ECOSOC, advance US goals regarding the well-being of women and girls um, if I was confirmed for this position. I think CSW offers particular opportunities. I think the important thing is to be very strategic and forward-thinking in how we engage there, and to make sure that we approach each CSW session with a very clear sense of what we want to try to achieve. And we work very deliberately with CSW and other missions in New York, other governments, to try to make sure we're of one mind about the objectives we'll pursue during those sessions. 
So can you give me an example of a priority that you would have as you're looking at um, a first place to focus? Well, one issue, Senator, I feel is terribly important is the issue of education for women and girls. Um, it's something, unfortunately, where there have been huge and significant setbacks in the context of the COVID epidemic. We know that there are tens of thousands, millions of girls out of school at this point who may never get back into school. And I think that would be a really important area actually across the UN system for specific focus, because we know that without that kind of access to education, that it really imperils a young girl's future. So I would encourage CSW to look at that set of issues. Thank you, and we know that empowering women and girls also adds to the stability in communities and countries, the um, potential opportunities and prosperity and economic opportunities in countries as well. Um, Ms. Stewart, I was really pleased to see the Biden administration extend the New START Treaty, something that I worked on um, 10 years ago when it was before this body. But as we think about how we continue to engage with the Russians, where do you think we should be thinking and how can we build on that to cover tactical weapons, um, emerging nuclear technologies, uh, other efforts that we really need to address? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, I share your concerns with respect to um, the Russian uh, challenges that we're facing right now. Russia's new nuclear weapons and its diversification and dual-use delivery platforms represent a threat to strategic stability. Uh, the Strategic Stability Dialogue uh, is an interagency process to seek risk reduction and greater understanding of the policies and actions of the two nations. In the plenary, led by Deputy Secretary Sherman, we have agreed to two working groups okay. uh, for experts to discuss first the principles and objectives for the future of arms control, and second the capabilities and actions with strategic effect. We have made clear that we want to address all of Russia's nuclear weapons, including non-strategic nuclear weapons and novel delivery systems. Our driving principles in this process will be increasing U.S. and allied security, ensuring effective verification and faithful compliance for legally binding measures, and avoiding future miscalculation or misunderstanding. We are only at the beginning of our conversations, and so I agree with you, we need to be careful to understand the full range of challenges and misunderstanding potentials uh, that we face. So no determinations about specific approaches have been made, but the strategic stability dialogue is very good first step to try to engage and understand where we have overlapping concerns and where we can make progress uh, towards stabilizing our relationship. Uh, if confirmed, I hope to consult closely with this Congress to, to address this process further and to truly understand how we can best um, evaluate and, and consider this threat. And so are you optimistic? You said you think it's a good first step. Are you optimistic that we may be able to make some progress? I'm cautiously optimistic that in certain arenas, there is some progress we can make, that we can understand where our collective advantage for both the U.S. and Russia, and hopefully the global community, uh, can be um, satisfied by um, taking important um, actions to address uh, destabilizing behavior and to lead to the best norms of responsible behavior. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I understand the next colleague who is uh, available is Senator Van Hollen virtually. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank um, all the witnesses for your service. Uh, congratulations on your nominations. Uh, Ms. McCarty, uh, a question regarding uh, the sustainable development goals um, at the United Nations. Uh, we've 
gotten a recent report uh, indicating that since the onset of COVID-19, uh, we've seen an increase in extreme poverty, declines in educational achievement, increased violence against women and girls, and other trends that threaten to reverse uh, some of the positive development gains uh, that we've made in recent decades. Uh, the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations has, has the main responsibility for integrating, uh, addressing these issues across um, different UN agencies. Uh, what goals do you think we need to be most focused on when it comes to regaining lost ground? Where have we lost the most ground and, and what role can you play in the United States play uh, in trying to uh, catch up? Senator, thank you very much um, for that question and for flagging what really is an ancillary impact of the COVID epidemic that we all need to keep very much within our lines of sight. Um, you know, the truth is the U.S. has driven so much of those, that global development progress over many decades, and it is now all at risk. Um, I do think, Senator, the SDGs present a very important roadmap for how to bring the global community together in a common effort to ensure that we're trying to regain, regain ground on all those issues that you just mentioned, whether it's food insecurity, um, increasing rates of poverty, already mentioned with Senator Shaheen, children out of school, the list is quite long. And many of the SDGs directly address those risk areas, Senator. So there are ones focused on health, on education, on economic well-being, on the climate. Um, I think we actually have to be very strategic, look where the needs are right now most acute, and then try to prioritize action around those SDGs first. But I, I just be clear, Senator, in saying, I know Secretary Blinken has embraced the SDGs as a roadmap for development, and I think one of the real values that they bring is they do provide a path, a common path, and set uh, benchmarks for progress. So if confirmed for the position, Senator, I'd very much look forward to focusing on the SDGs as a key component of my work. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, maybe you can follow up uh, with respect to which areas you think um, are in most need of, of focused uh, attention uh, right now. Um, Mr. Chairman, can you still hear me? I, I can, uh, Senator. I think I, uh, so uh, I don't know, Ms. Uh, Cardi, just a follow-up question uh, for you. Uh, according to a July report by the International Service uh, for Human Rights, uh, China has repeatedly used its seat on ECOSOC uh, to block applications from NGOs working on human rights issues, and not only blocking NGOs working in China, but China's essentially acted as a shield for other authoritarian regimes. Um, are, are you familiar with this uh, situation and, and what would you do about it if confirmed? Senator, thanks very much. I'm not familiar with that specific report, but I'm certainly familiar with the, the broad issue at stake here. Um, and just I would say to start that we have to be very clear we can leave no space for China to try to undermine the fundamental values and principles of the UN system. Um, we have seen this play out very specifically in the NGO committee, which is the committee that accredits NGOs to, for UN representation. Um, I've worked at many points over my career, Senator, with non-governmental organizations, and I fully understand the importance of the perspective they can bring to the table. They must be there, but it must be legitimate, credible NGOs that are there. Um, if confirmed for this position, I would work across the NGO committee 
to ensure that entities that should be at the table are, particularly those that China might seek to deny a place to, um, perhaps NGOs working on human rights or press freedoms or other broad um, democracy and governance issues. Um, and I would ensure that those do, that do not belong at the table do not have a place. Thanks, Senator. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank all of you. I, I have some questions to submit for the record, but uh, congratulations to all. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to all the witnesses. Mr. Bondi, I think I'll spend my five minutes with you. Um, you you've have significant experience in a really important region of the world, and I want to ask you about a couple of issues dealing with the U.S.-Bahrain relationship. So first, um, Bahrain has been a good part of the United States in, in our evacuation of Afghans. They've been very helpful in, the, in being the home of our Fifth Fleet. Bahrain has also had some serious concerns about human rights issues, um, mass arrests in 2011, and it's a country where the leadership is a kind of a minority Sunni population that is in leadership, but about 70% of the population is Shia. Talk about what you could do, should you be confirmed, to promote uh, more attention to human rights in Bahrain. Senator, thank you very much for the question. Uh, indeed, as you say, uh, there has been uh, traditionally a fair bit of uh, friction and tension within uh, uh, the Kingdom of Bahrain uh, between the various communities. Uh, if you, uh, if we were to rewind 10 years ago, as you said, when, when there was uh, quite a bit of uh, strife in the country, uh, we would have to say the trend lines since then have been exceedingly positive. Uh, indeed, uh, the, uh, the government of Bahrain has used a new legislative mechanism uh, called the Alternative Sentencing Law to release over 3,500 convicts who were in prison, uh, and they have now been able to uh, depart the prison and uh, find other ways to sort of uh, get on with their lives. Additionally, Senator, there is a new uh, juvenile justice law which uh, elevates the age from 15 to 18 of who can be tried as a, uh, as a majority age individual. And uh, that has resulted, in fact, in uh, some people between uh, the ages of 15 and 18 really uh, serving kind of very shortened sentences in juvenile detention centers rather than as full-blown prisoners. But, uh, but Senator, you, you, you absolutely have hit the nail on the head. Uh, Promoting human rights is absolutely essential tenet of uh, the administration's foreign policy. And if confirmed, I will seek to use several fora that we already have established, uh, either through the strategic dialogue or in regular quarterly meetings between uh, the embassy and an interministerial uh, grouping in Manama to continue to promote the values and the interests that we have with, with regard to human rights. Mr. Bondi, thank you for that. Switching to another topic, um, in the last couple of days, something positive happened. Foreign Minister uh, Lapid of Israel visited Bahrain to open the Israeli um, embassy there. Very, very positive. I, I was a uh, supporter of the Abraham Accords when they were announced for a couple of reasons. I feel like the normalization of relations between nations in the region and Israel it was actually a public expression of what was already sort of going on sub rosa, and rather than have it be sub rosa, why not put it on the table that we're 
we're now going to work together on issues of common cause. A normalized diplomatic relationship is not a good housekeeping seal of approval, but it's just a, a way of having channels of dialogue and communication and normal relations which are beneficial. But the other reason I strongly support the Abrahamic Accords is I've been just so discouraged about the absence of progress toward a two-state solution in Israel. I visited Israel for the first time in 1998, uh, went to the West Bank as well, and frankly, in the 23 years since then, the situation uh, has moved farther away from the peace uh, between an Israel and Palestine living side by side that we contemplated when we recognized the state of Israel at its foundation during the Truman presidency. I view the Abrahamic Accords as giving uh, uh, nations in the region kind of skin in the game. Their, their populations want them to do things to promote uh, a successful resolution in a Palestinian nation that lives peacefully side by side with Israel. You were the charge at the UAE. UAE was one of the other uh, nations that uh, normalized relations with Israel in this way. What, what do you see as prospects of building upon the Abraham Accords to uh, break the stalemate that's existed for so long and find a path forward to the peace that we've longed for for decades? Thank you, Senator, for that uh, very important question and for your uh, comments on the situation. Uh, indeed, the Abraham Accords are a, they represent a strategic change for the region. Uh, and in fact, in my career, I also served in Jordan uh, when uh, Jordan made peace with Israel. So I view uh, strengthening and expanding uh, uh, the relationship of two very good friends and allies, Bahrain and Israel, uh, as a, a very important bookend to my own career with the Foreign Service. But I, I believe there is great potential for uh, those two friends to build their relationship all the way across the spectrum, and I will devote my energy and creativity, if confirmed, to helping them to do exactly that, Senator. Uh, Mr. Chair, I yield back. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane. I understand we have next uh, by WebEx, Senator Young. Senator Young, are you there? I'll uh, pursue my questioning and then we'll come back to Senator Young if he. Uh, if he's available. Uh, first, uh, let me thank all of our nominees uh, for their public service and their willing to continue in public service. Uh, these are difficult times. We thank you and your families. Each of the positions that you've been nominated to are extremely important to our national security and to America's interest. Ms. Cardi, I'm going to follow up on the sustainable development goals. Uh, I was listening to your response to Senator Van Hollen. Uh, but I want to concentrate on one that was not mentioned during that exchange, and that's uh, sustainable goal number 16. It's the one that the United States was the initiator of to include it among the SDGs. It is, the, it is a new one, so therefore it's going to be more challenging to implement accountability standards, and it's a little bit more difficult to establish accountability standards for SDG 16. Uh, as compared to others that we have established ways of evaluating how well we're doing in meeting the SDG goals. So will you tell me your strategy uh, on dealing with SDG 16, which deals with good governance, so that I can have uh, your assurances that this will be 
in a very high priority uh, if you are confirmed uh, to this position. Thank, thank you very much, Senator. And uh, I think it's so important that the U.S. did insist on adding that as one of the core SDGs because it's fundamental to everything else that needs to happen. It's fundamental to how the U.N. system needs to work. Um, if confirmed, Senator, I would work very aggressively with other like-minded governments to ensure that we did have the clearest possible benchmarks and indicators, meaningful benchmarks and indicators, practical benchmarks and indicators, to track progress on SDG 16, and also to ensure that where we saw backtracking, we had effective means of calling that out. Um, I think it comports very well, Senator, with broader U.S. development policy. And if confirmed, I'd look forward to paying sustained attention and working with you and your staff on that. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, we're going to try to help you by establishing a rating system uh, for how well countries are doing on fighting corruption, which is one of the key ingredients, uh, anti-corruption, to have good governance. So uh, we're, we're going to try to help you, but I can assure you I'll be um, uh, sending you information and expecting responses in regards to carrying out President Biden's acknowledgement that corruption is a national security core concern. So you have a chance to do something about that with the SDG 16. And speaking about backtracking on good governance, um, Mr. Bondi, uh, Senator Kane already covered this point, but I just want to cover it uh, from a little bit different angle. And that is that, yes, Bahrain's an important ally of the United States in, in so many different areas, including our strategies against Iran, as well as the Abraham Accords and moving forward with normalization with, uh, with relations with Israel. During our spring, Bahrain was one of the most aggressive countries in dealing uh, with removing the, the rights of the citizens of their own country and abuses that occurred. We saw some reforms, but it appears now they have backtracked on many of those issues. I appreciate your comments about some of the uh, issues concerning youthful offenders, but my information shows they're still using the arrest powers indiscriminately uh, to crack down on any opposition to the government at all, uh, including peaceful demonstrations. So I just really uh, want to stress the point that with a country that we have a strategic partnership with, that is backtracking on their commitments on human rights, we have to be very clear that that is of major concern to us and affects our ability to strengthen the ties between our two countries. Senator, I'm, I'm very grateful for your comments on, on this important matter. Um, uh, I, it's, it's difficult for me to comment on whether uh, there's backtracking or forward movement uh, as uh, you know, obviously I'm not serving in the capacity. However, I can assure you, Senator, that uh, raising uh, the broad swath of human rights issues would be something that uh, I would uh, eagerly do if confirmed as ambassador. And uh, we do have several mechanisms where we can raise kind of the, the broad policy issues as well as specific cases. And I'll say that uh, my understanding is that our Bahraini partners have been very open to having that free and, and frank dialogue. 
And uh, if confirmed, I would welcome the role of this committee and the Congress to play in this uh, extremely important set of human rights issues. And let me mention one other th part that our missions play in countries where NGOs or advocates have a challenging time in exercising their rights, their basic human rights, where the U.S. mission becomes a safe place for them to be able to get support for being heard. Do you commit, if confirmed, that our mission uh, in, in the country will always be a safe haven uh, for those trying to exercise their basic human rights? Yes, Senator, I do. Uh, those activities go on already where we have a broad swath of outreach to human rights defenders and human rights organizations. And if confirmed, I absolutely want to continue that outreach. Thank you. Um, I believe Senator Young is now available vis-a-vis uh, -vis WebEx. Senator Young. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Cardin. Uh, Mr. Bondi, uh, very good to see you, sir. Congratulations uh, to you on, on your nomination and to all the other panelists on, on your nominations. Mr. Bondi, Bahrain recently committed to partner with Task Force uh, 59 and will be the first nation to partner with that group. According to NAVSENT, they agreed to collaborate in October on manned unmanned teaming exercise uh, to evaluate advanced unmanned surface vessels. Will you commit to support Bahrain's partnership with the Fifth Fleet's recently created Unmanned Systems Task Force, Task Force 59, and will you work to promote other Gulf states joining this uh, important initiative? Senator, I absolutely can support that. Uh, I think it's a very important initiative in order to uh, continue to promote uh, freedom of navigation and safe transport uh, in the, uh, on the high seas. Very good. Sir, in light of the Abraham Accords and Israel's entry into CENTCOM, will you commit to push as hard as possible to get the Israeli military as integrated as possible in the multilateral activities that CENTCOM and the Fifth Fleet lead out of Bahrain, including maritime security efforts in the Gulf and Red Sea and regional efforts on missile defense and counter drone efforts? Senator, I believe that uh, moving forward on building the relationship between Israel and Bahrain in a broad spectrum of areas, all the way, you know, starting with military and security, as you're describing, and then moving all the way across to uh, economy, trade, education, technology, and people-to-people -people ties is incredibly important. Um, and certainly, if confirmed, I would like to find a way to use the convening power of the United States in order to involve Israel more closely in planning and discussions related to uh, preserving security in Bahrain and the Gulf region. Thank you. And, and, and lastly, sir, will you commit to work with CENTCOM and the Fifth Fleet to get an Israeli naval liaison officer assigned to NAVSENT in Manama? Yes, Senator, I admit that I'm unaware of that uh, specific initiative, 
but uh, I, uh, if confirmed, I absolutely would want to consult with the Department of Defense, with NAVSENT, and assist in any way that I could play a useful role. That makes sense, Mr. Bondi. I'll, I'll look forward to, uh, should you be confirmed, uh, following up with you and, and your consultation with DOD, and if there's any way I could be of assistance and furtherance of that effort, uh, I'll be happy to do so. Ms. Stewart, um, congratulations to you as well. We continue to see the uh, foundation of strategic arms control crumble away. Um, I, years ago, uh, spent a brief stint uh, uh, of time working on the staff of uh, former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Dick Luger. So I feel especially responsible to ensure the legacy of arms control is protected and renewed. To do that, we must have partners and processes that we can trust. At the same time, we wanna ensure that we don't erode our defensive capabilities by entering into an agreement that is one-sided. What are the core areas of New START, uh, Ms. Stewart, that need to be updated in order for the US and Russia to have confidence in the agreement? Thank you, Senator, for that question. I definitely appreciate your background in this issue, and I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you um, are concerned about the future in this arena, because I am as well. Um, because of the downturn in relations with the Russian Federation, effective arms control is more valuable now than it was in 2010. And it is important to maintain the boundaries on nuclear competition, even as we hold the Russian Federation to account for its reckless and aggressive actions. Um, I think the verifiable limits on Russian intercontinental range nuclear forces allow us to make better informed judgments about the sufficiency of U.S. nuclear forces and help diminish the possibility of a costly and dangerous nuclear arms race. As you know, New START also provides a forum for ongoing dialogue on strategic stability and nuclear weapons at a time when tensions between our countries are elevated and bilateral relations are increasingly challenged. As to your specific question, it would be useful in the next steps beyond the New START treaty to address the non-strategic nuclear weapons of, of the Russian Federation, to understand their uh, limitations, numbers, and parameters in a way that could comprehensively address our concerns with respect to a lack of strategic st stability uh, by their increasing presence. Um, so as for the specifics of uh, a next step agreement beyond New START, I think we definitely have to consider um, has, as, as many administrations have, how to bring in the non-strategic nuclear weapons and the novel delivery systems, including the unmanned delivery platforms to address their concerns um, from a strategic stability vantage. Thank you. I think my time is, is uh, about to end. Uh, I am curious um, uh, whether there's any interest in Russia for a revised INF after uh, the Trump administration pulled out on account of the fact that it had essentially become in, in a unilateral agreement. So um, unless you have a yes or no answer on that, uh, which I would welcome, uh, maybe we can talk about <coughs> that later. Thank you. I look forward to discussing this with you if confirmed. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to the nominees. Uh, Ms. Stewart, the post that you would hold if you're confirmed uh, is one that's critically important to the national security of the United States. Uh, among other things, the bureau you'd be heading is responsible for the annual report mandated by Congress on international adherence to arms control treaties. 
This report serves both as a proxy and a litmus test for the seriousness with which presidential administrations approach dangerous proliferation. During the Trump administration, I repeatedly urged the president to untangle the United States from Cold War-style treaties that only constrained us, both because Russia cheated on them and China was not even bound by them. President Trump rightly extracted us from treaties like the INF and Open Skies. The annual compliance report, which documented Russian and Chinese proliferation, was a crucial part of the case I made and the decisions that President Trump took. I want to discuss with you how you would approach these issues if confirmed. Let's start with China. China is engaged right now in a nuclear buildup that likely puts them in violation of their obligations under Article 6 of the NPT. The U.S. has limited leverage to stop this buildup, though. I previously introduced legislation that would impose sanctions on parts of the Chinese military sector unless they come into compliance with their already existing NPT Article 6 obligations for good faith negotiations. Do you agree that China is in violation of its Article 6 obligations? Thank you, Senator. I, I share your concern about China's growing nuclear arsenal, um, and it does pose a security threat to the United States and our allies. Um, that said, I intend to, if confirmed, work closely with the lawyers and the experts in the Arms Control Bureau to understand more fully the exact um, development and uh, capacity enhancement that China is engaging in and to understand how that implicates their Article Six obligations under the NPT. Does that mean you don't have an opinion right now about whether China is, is in violation of their Article Six obligations? I think I need to understand better exactly the parameters of their development and what they intend to do. I understand there's future plans and, um, and, and certainly rapid expansion in the future, and I need to understand exactly where that is going to be implicated with respect to their nuclear capacities. All right, let's turn to Russia. Uh, you have been a noted advocate of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. As you know, the United States Senate has pointedly refused to ratify the CTBT, in part because of Russian behavior. In its 2021 compliance report, the Trump administration rightly called out this behavior. I'd like to quote from that report. Quote, the United States finds that since declaring its testing moratorium, Russia has conducted nuclear weapons experiments that have created nuclear yield and are not consistent with the U.S. zero yield standard. Do you agree with that assessment? I agree with the assessment in the compliance report, yes. Do you commit to ensuring, if you're confirmed, that you would continue to document such noncompliance? Absolutely. Okay, let's shift then to Iran. Since 2007, it has nearly always been the position of the United States that Iran is not a member in good standing within the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, the NPT. We know the Iranian regime kept nuclear weapons blueprints on the shelf, even while they were still pretending to comply with the Iran deal. In April 2019, then nominee to be Special Representative to, for Nuclear Non-Proliferation, Jeffrey Eberhardt, confirmed in writing to this committee that, quote, Iran's standing as a non-nuclear weapon state party to the NPT cannot be described as good. Do you agree with Mr. Eberhardt's assessment? 
Sorry. Uh, thank you for the question. I do. Do you consider Iran's past possession of the nuclear archives seized by Israel, including materials in the archives relevant to the development of nuclear weapons, to constitute noncompliance by Iran of its obligation under the NPT? So we certainly share the concern that this is a, a serious issue we need to look into, but I think we need more understanding and information regarding that um, background file to assess whether that constitutes a violation of the NPT. Okay, and final question. I'm, I'm concerned about the possibility of the Biden administration adopting a, quote, no first use nuclear policy. China has formally declared a no first use policy, but the Chinese Communist Party has proven itself willing to break such promises after we agree to them. Do you personally support a no first use policy for the United States? Thank you. So with respect to that question, I would certainly defer to the Department of Defense process um, that is presently undergoing to understand what exact policy um, is, is being included in a, in a statement of no first use. Um, that said, I, I appreciate um, that we need to ensure our extended deterrence commitments to our allies and partners remain strong and credible, as the President has stated that we would do in our interim national security strategic guidance. Um, and it, it's important to make sure allies and partners understand um, that whatever steps we take, our commitment to their defense is unshakable. So you don't have any personal views on this topic, though? I, you know, I have a lot of personal views um, with respect to the underlying policies being considered in the nuclear posture review, but I'm certainly, um, I'm certainly welcoming yeah, what, what are those views? That's, that's the question, is what are those views? Yeah, I think we have to, we have to really um, consider how we can take steps to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in our deterrence. Um, but we have to do so in a way that ensures our extended deterrence commitments to our allies and partners remain strong and credible. And I think, you know, regardless of the policy language, the words will be informed um, by the concerns that the senator raised earlier. Um, they'll be informed by our engagement with the allies and partners to ensure them of our unshakable commitment. And so if the policy is no first use, if it's sole purpose, um, if it is fundamental purpose, or if it goes back to the 2018 nuclear posture review, it has to be done with a good sense of understanding for our commitments. And we need to make sure that our commitments to our, to our allies are strong and unshakable. And we need to understand their concerns and address them. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there are no other members before the committee, as I understand, so I'll ask questions myself. Before I do, I want to wish Senator Cardin a very happy, joyous, and healthy birthday, and many more. One of our key members of the committee. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Ben. Happy birthday to you. And many more. All right. You now understand that Senator Menendez's uh, Senate career is his second career. His first career is as a <laughs> Uh, this is a singer and a performer. So thank you very much, Chairman. Oh, I'm not giving up my day job. I like to eat. So, uh, <laughs> but happy birthday, Ben. This is what happens when you sing. I sang to Gene Shaheen, so now he wants to be sung to. You know, that's, I made that mistake of doing that in public. So in any event, happy birthday, Ben. Um, 
And I understand, I don't know if he's here anymore, but uh, uh, a former member of the staff, John Ryan, who is at the State Department, shares an illustrious birthday with Senator Cardin, so happy birthday to him as well. Uh, let me, uh, on a serious note, turn to uh, our nominees. Um, uh, Ms. Stewart, uh, you may have heard my opening uh, comments, and uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you believe that the uh, department as it is presently uh, configured, as it is presently staffed, is up to the challenge uh, ahead? Uh, thank you, Senator. I share your concerns um, that the Bureau um, of Arms Control has been challenged through the previous administration, losing resources, losing um, supporting staff. Um, and, I, and I agree that bringing on a new generation of experts and enabling the good transfer of institutional knowledge will be a priority, um, as will expanding our ability to confront and contend with an increasingly aggressive China and new and emerging technolo technological challenges. Um, I agree with you, we also need to expand and enhance our work to create a new generation of tools and technologies that will enhance verification and allow us to better monitor compliance. Um, we need to position ourselves to work closely with the intelligence community and the U.S. interagency to explain the basis for the U.S. government's compliance concerns to the international community in an effort to shine a light and hopefully resolve those concerns. And, and finally, we need to work to rebuild an understanding of the importance of arms control measures in coordination with deterrence to achieve a lasting and sustainable strategic stability. If confirmed, all of these are issues that I hope to work on in close cooperation with you to expand and enhance the capacity of the Bureau to address the numerous challenges it faces. You know, we have, we have a, an extraordinary array of issues uh, that your um, department would have uh, responsibility for and for which I think we face some major challenges. Let me ask you specifically, it appears that we have reached a critical juncture in our diplomatic efforts to contain Iran's nuclear program. It continues to stonewall the IAEA's investigation into undeclared nuclear materials and activities that were uncovered in 2018 and is refusing to allow the IAEA to assess critical monitoring equipment. I don't, I don't even understand quite the, the uh, much ballyhooed agreement that was reached by the IAEA. Um, all they did is they take, took out the components that were previously uh, being used for monitoring, but which they can't see, and put in the new chips to continue to monitoring, but which they can't see. So we don't have any eyes on site uh, during this period of time to understand how far they have advanced. And Tehran is pressing forward with their nuclear program with the current breakout time to produce the necessary uh, material for a weapon near where it was before the JCPOA was signed. Um, what impact is Iran's refusal to cooperate with the IAEA having on compliance with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty? And do you think that Iran has really walked away without very much consequence that other states will follow Iran's lead in refusing to fully cooperate with the IAEA? Thank you, Senator. I completely share your concerns on this issue. Um, this administration remains committed to ensuring Iran never acquires a nuclear weapon, and we continue to believe diplomacy in coordination with our allies and regional partners is the best path to achieve that goal. We clearly have a series of fundamental disagreements on a wide range of issues. 
Iran's lack of cooperation on safeguards in the JCPOA, its support for terrorism, its ballistic missile programs, its destabilizing actions throughout the region, and its abhorrent practice of using wrongfully detained U.S. citizens and foreign nationals as political tools are all issues of grave concern. But with respect to your specific point, if we don't address the numerous challenge, challenges that Iran poses, we will risk other countries following Iran's lead. And we will risk the diminishment of the IAEA and the NPT itself. So this administration is very focused on understanding what we can do to address all of these challenges while supporting the IAEA. ABC's sister bureau, the ISN Bureau, is the lead in the T family on this issues. If confirmed, I will work to make sure ABC is ably assisting the department in its efforts to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon and to ensure support for the IAEA in all of its efforts. All right. Uh, I have questions for you on China, but I will submit them for the record. I'd like a full answer uh, when, uh, when you receive them. Let me turn to um, Mr. Bondi. Um, We obviously, you obviously support the continued partnership with Bahrain to address counterterrorism needs in the region. Is that correct? Yes, I do. And Senator. as well as uh, maintaining the close security partnership that we have between the United States and Bahrain. Yes, I do, Senator. Now, uh, we applaud that Bahrain and the UAE uh, became countries that normalized relations uh, with Israel. Um, but if confirmed, what, states can, what steps can you take as ambassador to preserve the space for continued dialogue on normalization? How would you help foster uh, Israel's growing ties with Bahrain? Yes, Senator, uh, thank you very much for the question. Uh, uh, this is an issue set that if confirmed, I would want to devote all of my creativity and energy in order to expand uh, the relationship between two of our close friends and allies in the Middle East region. Um, indeed, I believe there is uh, quite a bit of progress that can be made. At least at this stage, uh, uh, both sides have taken the uh, fundamentally important step to complete and sign and promote the Abraham Accords. And now comes the time where it needs to be operationalized. Now, uh, as we heard earlier, uh, the Israeli Foreign Minister did visit Bahrain just a few days ago. Bahrain does have an ambassador now in Israel, and uh, my understanding is Israel shortly will have a, 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 an ambassador in Bahrain. I would certainly want to, uh, if confirmed, consult uh, with the Israeli embassy, the Israeli ambassador. But I do believe, uh, Senator, that there is a great amount of room for uh, joint cooperation, be it in the military and security realm, all the way across to people-to-people -people contact. And uh, I would want to look for opportunities in order to enhance that relationship. I've said to several of our nominees going to some of these countries is that it's great that the Abraham Accords were signed. It's great that there's a normalizing. But normalizing has to go a step beyond. If you're allies, you're allies. Uh, that means you stand up for Israel at institutions like the United Nations. It means you engage within the region to uh, engage other countries within the region. It, it, as you say, it has to become operational. Uh, otherwise, it is just a, a piece of paper for which there is a recognition 
of a relationship, but what that relationship is, is really ultimately embodied by the actions of both countries uh, bilaterally uh, in, in each case. So I hope to see that in the case of Bahrain. I do have questions um, about uh, our uh, human rights, and I will submit those for the record that I'd like to see you uh, respond to. Finally, Ms. Carty. Um, um, I, uh, I look at uh, what some people say about ECOSOC, and uh, there are some who say that ECOSOC uh, lacks any real authority and that it works overlaps with the activities of the UN General Assembly. It's been suggested that the Council could play a greater role in global economic and development policy. The UN has passed several reforms over the years, including as recently as this year, to strengthen ECOSOC's policy guidance role and to improve collaboration between ECOSOC and subsidiary councils and other UN entities. What's your assessment of the most recent ECOSOC reforms? Do you believe that ECOSOC should have a greater policy setting role? So, Senator, thanks for the question. Um, I think it's still a work in motion, Senator, as best I understand the situation. ECOSOC does play an important role in framing the conversation that then goes on to the General Assembly in creating reports, resolutions, documents that can set the context for how key issues are discussed. Key issues this matter substantially to the United States. Um, if confirmed for this position, Senator, I'd always keep that in mind. How do we work effectively across the ECOSOC bodies to ensure that their operations are effectively supporting important US goals um, that are within the purview of, of the committee. I'm a firm believer, Senator, that the UN functions best when the US is in a leadership role and is clearly at the table. And I would hope, if confirmed, to bring that to the ECOSOC discussion. Mm -hmm. and one last question for you. Uh, I'm concerned about China's increasing influence and role in UN bodies. Uh, ECOSOC consults with more than 5,100 registered non-governmental organizations to inform its work. I'm deeply concerned that within ECOSOC, China has used its seat on the Council's Committee on NGOs to block applications from NGOs working on human rights issues. Uh, I know you're not there yet, but you've been involved in, in this field in general. How do you assess China's efforts to use its increased influence at ECOSOC and elsewhere in the UN system to undermine civil society and silence the voices of those who champion human rights? Senator, I think this absolutely is a problem, and it needs to be a top priority. Um, we know that there's a broader effort undertaken by China across the UN system to try to insert its authoritarian values in place of core UN principles. We cannot allow that to happen. There are particular risks in the ECOSOC space, and in particular in the NGO committee, where I understand China has acted to ensure that NGOs that represent Tibet or the Uyghurs um, are not allowed to participate. If confirmed for this position, Senator, I share fully with you the view that NGOs and civil society provide an absolute critical perspective. Credible organizations need to be at the table, and I devote the full measure of my energies to ensure that was, in fact, the case. Well, we look forward to that. Um, this committee, as well as the Senate, has spoken with one voice on China, uh, and uh, therefore, whether it be on arms control issues or whether it be about its nefarious activities at the UN that I've just described. We look forward to a forceful response. Senator Haggerty has made it under the wire, so uh, he is now recognized. Thank you, Senator Menendez. It was my honor to follow you in the banking committee meeting just a few minutes ago, and thank you for your comments there and your leadership there. Um, Ms. Stewart, I'd like to turn a question to you. 
The United States has a long history of using a nuclear deterrent to prevent not only nuclear aggression, but non-nuclear forms of aggression that either threaten us or our allies. Jim Baker, who served as President George H.W. Bush's Secretary of State, wrote about the use of calculated ambiguity. Using calculated ambiguity in America's policy to deter and prevent Saddam Hussein, uh, I think had a real effect looking at the possible use of chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction during the 1991 Gulf War. We use calculated ambiguity to make an enemy think really hard about the possible consequences before they might launch chemical or biological weapons against the United States, knowing that the response could include a full range of options, including nuclear. In 2020, presidential candidate Biden argued that, and I'm gonna quote, the sole purpose of the US nuclear arsenal should be deterring and if necessary, retaliating against a nuclear attack, the end of his quote. From my perspective as a businessman, I always think it's a bad option to take tools and options off the table, particularly with dealing in situations where the United States or our allies might be in danger. So I want to ask you, Ms. Stewart, do you, do you support adopting a sole purpose policy? Thank you so much for that question. I agree, this is a really um, difficult area and it's, it's a very complicated analysis um, that right now is, is, is being led by the Department of Defense um, to really have a whole of government um, review of our deterrence posture, um, our missile defense review, um, our nuclear policy, um, and our broader uh, national defense um, guidance. So I think, you know, this is a hard issue. Uh, with respect to sole purpose, uh, with respect to no first use, with respect to sort of the policy formulations, um, ultimately, United States declaratory nuclear policy will be a decision for the president. Um, and the particular language chosen for this policy will be fully informed by the perspectives of our allies and partners. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, we will engage allies and partners and we will continue to, and we have been engaging with them um, to assure them that, that the United States commitment to their defense is unshakable. Um, and to explain how our rationale for the declaratory policy is chosen by the president in the best national security interests and how we intend um, to assure our allies and partners security consistent with that policy. Uh, to your specific question, um, the, the policy formulations that the Department of Defense right now is coming up with will fully take into account the strategic threat environment we face and uh, will certainly lay out um, the, the concerns and the challenges with respect to any option on the table. Um, I, I don't want to get ahead of where the department is on this, um, uh, but I understand that all, all different uh, formulations of what that policy could be are on the table. So um, the concern I have is when we say uh, sole purpose, what sort of formulation of that are we discussing? Or if we say no first use, what formulation? There's, there's several different, um, I guess, semantic conversations we could have about what you're looking at and what you're considering in the NPR process and what um, the Department of Defense is putting on the table, again, fully informed by their threat assessment. So, you know, there are certain sole purpose formulations that may make more or less sense depending on what we're trying to address um, throughout the NPR um, and, and looking at the integrated deterrence considerations. Um, but, but I think you know, these will all be very carefully observed and studied and presented to the president. Well, I can confidently say this. 
that anything we do in an environment like we have right now where the threat is escalating, anything that we might do that would limit our options would weaken the United States, it would embolden our adversaries, and it will cause our allies to question us. So I encourage you strongly as you look at this policy, as you contemplate the responsibilities that you're facing, that you take every effort to broaden our options and not restrict them in any manner. Thank you. Well, thank you. That concludes our hearing. Uh, the record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Wednesday, October 6, 2021. I ask colleagues to ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than tomorrow on Wednesday. Uh, I would say to the nominees, uh, inevitably, there will be questions that will be directed to you. I'd urge you to answer them fully as well as, uh, as expeditiously as possible so that your nominations can be considered uh, before the committee at a business hearing. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.